The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Tonight, tonight, I've been talking about for a while, and I'm very, very excited about it. Our guest tonight will be Jude Sutherland Kessler. Jude is a Beatles expert, a John Lennon expert. She's written a four volume series of John Lennon uh, books. It's a series of uh, a continuing biography. The series is not done yet, but her work is considered to be uh, the standard by which many people uh, learn of and judge the life of John Lennon. I don't mean judge in a judgmental way. I mean, just in understanding it. Yeah, so Jude is going to be our guest tonight, and, and as I've been talking about, as a huge Beatles fan, I'm very excited about this. But one thing I'm not excited about, and I need just to mention this quickly, and I don't know if it'll do any good here, if it'll help. I'm hoping it does, but um, I feel it's an ob- uh, not just an obligation. It's something I really want to do. I've got a friend. In fact, the whole paranormal community has a friend. Anybody who's been to any of the events that uh, Jason and I have done over the course of the last 15 years probably ran into a woman by the name of Tracy Riker. And Tracy uh, is, is, a, is a, um, a dear friend, a very nice woman. And it's just been reported that she's missing in Florida. Now, this is a weird thing to report because nobody really has many details other than the fact for 40 hours now she has not been heard from. She left her house at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, yesterday morning, she left without her purse. She left without her cell phone. She is in a green Xterra a Nissan Xterra, with the license plate number P-O, as in octopus, 8116, P-O-116, a green Xterra in Florida. I don't know, if you're in Florida and you can post on your social media, again, it's a green Xterra, P-O-8116. So we're all very hopeful that uh, we we, uh, get a good word about this sometime in the near future. She's a great woman and a very um, um, a big supporter of the paranormal community, been in a lot of events. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our Twitch channel. Both of those channels can be found by going to the respective platforms and searching for JV Johnson. Very easy to find. Once you find them, subscribe or follow or whatever you can do. Also, I will remind you, we have a Patreon page, which helps us uh, help support the program. Slick Eddie over here is not an inexpensive producer. He's a good producer, but he's not inexpensive. And as you know, we've cut our advertising uh, availability by a significant amount in the new format. So if you're so inclined, go to Patreon and uh, search for Joha, J-O-H-A-W. When you find it, you can um, you can do a, you know whatever. There's a couple of different options there. It's not a lot of money. A couple bucks a month helps us out. That's all. Again, if you if you can't, absolutely no problem. We respect that, too, and we want you part of this community regardless. But if you can, that's very, very helpful. Um, we did have a question um, in one of our chat rooms in Twitch. Iowa asks, who's missing? I'm going to say it one more time here. Um, the woman's name is Tracy Riker. She's missing in Florida. I don't have the specific communities, but I will get that. She's driving a green Xterra. She hasn't been seen for 40 hours. Left her home at 6.30 in the morning yesterday without her purse and without her cell phone, which in itself is very, very odd, as anybody knows these days. You just don't leave without those things. Um, Her license plate number on this green Xterra is PO8116. If anybody has a way to share that on their social media... And uh, if you're in Florida, keep an eye out. 
would appreciate it very, very much. Okay, again, tonight is the night we've been waiting for for some time. We've been talking about this conversation we're about to have with Jude Sutherland Kessler. We'll be talking about the Beatles in some detail. We probably won't be taking phone calls, but if you have questions, please put them in the chat room. Um, I have a ton of questions. In fact, I've got more questions than I've than I probably have had for any guest. Which uh, I feel sorry for Jude because I'll be firing him at her. Uh, I know she's going to be able to answer them. I'm just concerned we'll have enough time to get them all in. But if you have a question about the Beatles or anything related to our topic tonight, please feel free to throw it in the chat room. I will watch very closely as best I can to catch those questions so we can ask them for you. We'll take a break when we come back. Our guest will be with us again tonight. We're talking about the Beatles with Jude Sutherland Kessler on Beyond Reality. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJTaps. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My favorite Beatles song changes depending on the day, depending on the week, depending on the hour sometimes. But that one is always in the top five. Hey, Bulldog, uh, the Beatles, of course. There's something about the energy in that song. And if you've seen the video that was created from the studio, studio session where they recorded that song, there's a magic going on in the studio when they recorded that song. And I think part of that magic is why that song is so great. It's why you hear it. Somehow you hear that magic in the recording. Our guest tonight knows way more about this topic and and all things Beatles and John Lennon than I could ever hope to, and that's why I'm so excited about this conversation tonight. Jude Sutherland Kessler is our guest. She's an author. She's written a a series of uh, John Lennon biographies. I think the series, Jude, is, um, is four deep at this point, but you're not done by any means, are you? I'm not. All total, JV, I will do... 48 years of my life in Lennon research, writing the book, editing, and then, of course, if you're going to write the book, you have to sell it. So speaking and touring the country. And I am just absolutely delighted to be with you tonight because if you like Hey Bulldog, you are a true Lennon fan. (laughs) That is going deep into the weeds in the Lennon uh, collection. Love it. That is a, one of my favorites, too. Somehow, I don't think this is work for you. Somehow, I think there's a magic in doing this for you. Uh, you you enjoy this, don't you? I love it. I absolutely love it. Years and years ago, when I was just starting out doing my research, I read a book called The Day John Met Paul. And I had never written to any author ever. I mean, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader and, and just love to read. But I wrote to Jim O'Donnell, the, the author, and said, of all of the Beatles books that I own, yours is my favorite. And I have over 500. And that 
day or a couple of days later, my son called me at work and said, Mom, you just got a call from some author out of New York City. Well, it was Jim O'Donnell, and he called to say, you know, why, are you, why do you have 500 books about the Beatles? What are you doing? You must be working on a project of your own. And when I told him what I was doing, because the John Lennon series is written like you would read a novel, but every single sentence is footnoted and documented because what they eat, they ate. What they wear, they wore. What they say, they said. It's very technical, but it reads like a novel. And when I told him, he said, Ordinarily, I would tell you there's absolutely no way you'll ever sell, if you're going to self-publish, more than 80 to 100 books. He said, but you'll get out there. You love this. You'll talk about it. You'll sell it. And we just sold past the 300,000 books, Mark, which is not a lot. But for a self-published book, I love doing it. It's never work. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that is amazing. And that actually is a significant number of books. Uh, We're going to get into a lot of detail about a lot of this stuff. But just quickly, uh, the artwork on the books is pretty unique. Where Where did the artwork come from? Well, the first one, of course, on Should Have Been There, which is volume one, was done by Astrid Kirscher, who, if people know the story of the Beatles, when they went to Hamburg in 1960, she was part of a group of existentialist college students who were very free-thinking, bohemian, artistic, outside of the box. And she is the one that really talked them into adopting what would become the Beatle cut. She also talked them into wearing clothes that were unusual and outstanding. She made Stu Sutcliffe, their first bass player, a pocketless, very form-fitting jacket. And when the others saw it, they said, that's what we want to wear on stage. And, of course, they had them made by Pierre Cardin, and that was that pocketless, very beautiful gray outfit that they wore. But um, she was a huge influence on them, as were all of the existentialists. And that's where it comes from. That That's where it all begins, really. Well, how does it all begin for you, though? I mean, you know, the Beatles were such a, a force throughout the 60s into the 70s, and they really still are in so many ways. But everybody has a point where they got their introduction. How did it happen for you? Well, I was actually in fourth grade uh, before the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan, which is very strange because I had to have an import record in order to see it. But I went to school one day in elementary school, and um, all my friends came up to me, and they had one of the import 45s. It was probably either Swan or VJ, or maybe it was you know something from uh, England at that time, a Parlophone 45. And they said, these are the Beatles, and you have to pick one to follow in love with. Everyone's in love. You've got to recess to fall in love with one of them. I was like, what? Because I was a studious little, you know, quiet kid, not into the Beatles, never heard of the Beatles, and I had two and a half hours to fall in love with one. Well, initially that day, I picked George, and I could tell all my friends were crestfallen. I knew that's not who they thought I should pick. So I went home that night. I called all the big sisters of my friends and talked to them about the Beatles and researched the Beatles, which I'm still doing. And they all tell me that John was the one that formed the band. It was his idea. He had gathered everybody, and he was the leader Beatle and the thinker Beatle. And I went back the next day and said, I'm changing my mind. I'm picking John Lennon. And, you know, since 
before the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan, it's been John Lennon. So um, I, you know, go way, 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 way back, and it's been a pleasure all these years. Jude, can you put yourself in that that fourth grade mindset again? Did you say fourth grade or four years old? Fourth grade. Yeah, put yourself in that fourth grade mindset again. What was, I mean, for your friends to say, you've got to pick one, you've got to fall in love, there's four of them, you got your choice, which one do you want to fall in love with? What was happening at that point prior to Ed Sullivan that that girls in fourth grade were telling their friends, you got to fall in love with one of these boys? You know, it was such a phenomenon that I don't know if you can ever explain it. As John Lennon said, if we understood what caused people to fall in love with us, we'd form a band of our own and manage them and make money off of them, you know, which would have been much easier than what they did, which is work harder than any group on the face of the earth, nonstop, just about 360 maybe 355 days a year, but they worked constantly all day long really hard. I I, I just don't know because, you know, prior to the Beatles, we had the Bobbies. You had Bobby V and Bobby Vinton and Bobby Darren and Paul Anka, and it was all very smooth and mellow and romantic and lilting. And then all of a sudden you have, I want to hold your hand, and she loves you, and things change completely. That raucous sound that really had been, you go back to not just Elvis and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, but the Beatles are pulling from the Shirelles and the Marvelettes, and they are bringing in songs not only that were popular in Motown before Motown was big. They're they're digging deep, and they're bringing in these songs that are very unheard of because they prided themselves on finding songs to sing that no other group was singing. But they're singing songs that women wrote and that women penned, songs from a woman's point of view. So it sounds like they understand women. They're singing from a woman's heart instead of a man's perspective. And I think that's one of the things that promulgated them all the way to the top, pushed them, is that women thought, oh, he gets me, he understands me. But I remember my birthday, November 4th, Right before 1963, little did I know that that night when I was standing around a campfire roasting marshmallows, the Beatles were standing on the stage at the Royal Command performance in front of royalty, and John was saying, "In the those of you in the cheaper <laughs> seats, clap your hands, and those of you in the expensive seats, rattle your jewelry. And so I, we, all those girls, were all standing around. We're preteens. Of course, we all want to fall in love. You're all thinking about having a boyfriend. And who better than these dashing, quirky young men from Liverpool with a fascinating accent and this interesting background? It just was magic. See, I knew this was going to be a problem because in your answer right there, you you inspired me to ask about another 25 questions that I hadn't uh, thought I'd want to ask. But there's just so much to talk about. And before I'm going to try to work through these and not forget some of these points that I wanted to make. But when you talk about the Beatles singing from a girl's point of view, you're talking about, I'm guessing, songs like Baby It's You and uh, Boys and, you know, some of these cover tunes that they did in the early records, because most most people don't recognize that the Beatles did not get to record a lot of their own material in the beginning. Yeah. 
Yeah, nor did they even want to because they were proud of being a stage band. They were proud of being a performance band. And that's what they did when they were on stage in the Cavern Club. And so when suddenly they become a band that's singing their own songs like Love Me Do, and I know you know that they fought to record Love Me Do. George Martin wanted them to do a song written by Tin Pan Alley called How Do You Do It? And they said, we can't go back to Liverpool after having sung a song like that. They'll laugh us off to play. We can't do that. No way. But they love performing and taking a song and making it their own. And I know that's become a trite phrase, especially with American Idol. That's what they always say. But they loved doing songs and putting their own spin on it. I mean, you take on With the Beatles, their second LP on Parlophone, they sing You Really Got a Hold on Me. That's Smokey Robinson's song. But it's so great that Smokey Robinson said, I almost liked it better than my own. It is different, completely different from his. It's gutsy, and it is just, John sings it from his mad love for the girl that he lost, who he was never able to get back again, his mother, Julia. And he's singing to her, you really got a hold on me. In fact, when he introduces it on Live at the BBC, he says, you really got a hold on me, mother. I mean, he's right out there with the fact that this is her song. Um, And so he, they loved doing these covers. Um, Devil in Her Heart, another cover, which was originally by another very unheard of Motown group who called it Devil in His Heart, and they take it and make it Devil in Her Heart. Money, of course, Barry Gordy's song, Money. Love doing covers. They're a performance band. And gradually, as we go into A Hard Day's Night, that's going to be almost a Lennon solo album. He writes almost all of the songs on that LP, and they're originals then. But boy, they say in the anthology, did we miss doing cover songs. They loved them. And a couple of covers that come to mind that really, and because you, you kind of define them as being able to take a song, someone else's song, and really make it their own, and and create almost a, it's almost a, an entirely new song. Um, things like Twist and Shout. I mean, people identify Twist and Shout with the Beatles, but that was an Isley Brothers tune. And, it was. Uh, and Kansas City. I mean, what version of Kansas City would you want to hear most? I mean, Paul McCartney screaming that one out is is one of the best rock and roll performances of all time, in my estimation. Man, you know your stuff. (laughs) You do. I mean, you know, you're not a casual Beatles fan. You you really, I mean, how long has this been a passion for you, JB? Well, um, my father was a huge Beatles fan, and uh, I grew up, you know, the first Beatles record I really remember was when Hey Jude was on the charts. I mean, I was listening, and I was running around kindergarten at that point, and singing Hey Jude with my friends. We all thought we were pretty cool. And, um, you know, so that was where, was my introduction. And because he was such a Beatles fan, it just, you know, it was a natural process for me. And I became yeah. one very, very quickly myself. Yeah. It hit so many people. And it's so international, ages, countries, sexes. It, they just appeal to everyone. One of my greatest memories was right after 9-11. I was living in Morrisville, Pennsylvania, which was about 40 minutes from the city. And of course, there were no airplanes flying at all. It was completely silent. And I was outside painting my deck. And those days were so sad and so quiet and somber. And I could hear a couple of yards over some children, little children, singing. And they're singing, 
we all live in a yellow submarine. Oh, wow. And I thought, into the silence, into every part of our lives, even into tragedy, the Beatles are there for us. And, and and there's such a comfort. They feel like, I mean, if you could describe a musical home, that's my musical home, and I'm sure it is for so many people. Um, yeah. Talk about... Uh, the the process by which the Beatles discovered that they actually had a voice of their own when it came to songwriting. And I know in that first album, Please Please Me, was a pivotal moment. Talk about that with George Martin, because I think that's a great story. When they when he was trying to convince them to do the cover record? Well, when, he, when, when they said they'd like to record Please yeah. Please Me, they played it. It wasn't a great version, you know, and yeah, and yeah talk about that. And he had them speed it up. And, and, you know, George Martin doesn't really get credit for all of the things that he did because he, having a classical music background, he's able to interject some ideas that are completely different from someone coming from Merseyside who is raised on Irish folk tunes. I mean, 83% of Liverpool in the 1960s was Irish. So they grew up very influenced by the sound of Irish music. And, and you do hear that in, the, in their compositions. But also, they are very influenced by the show tunes that are done in places like the Philharmonic. Um, variety shows were big at that time, and they see nothing wrong with doing songs like Till There Was You and, and Besame Mucha. That's another big influence. But George Martin is going to give them an element they couldn't have had otherwise. And when he says to them, hey, I like Please Please Me, but you need to pick it up. You need to give it some more vitality, and or when he says to them, on From Me to You, instead of playing on your guitars, da-da-dum, da-da-dum-dum-da, I want you to sing it. I want you to sing that introduction, those notes. So things that they think are unusual and unique, he'll say to them, no, guys, we're not going to do that. That's been done 50,000 times. Let's try this instead. He encourages them to bring in new instruments, to bring in the pianet, to bring in different percussion instruments, not just the drums. He is the one that convinces them later on, we're going to start bringing in classical instruments, French horns and oboes, and uh, eventually a full orchestra. So when they say, we want to be original. We're not going to record a song by Tin Pan Alley. We're songwriters. We want to write our own songs. He says, great, wonderful, let's do it, but let's do it with a little bit of guidance. And he gives them great guidance. And that was not uh, necessarily um, customary at the time. Most uh, bands did songs that professional songwriters wrote for them. And did quite well with them. That's I mean, right. you know, they go to number one with the professional songs. Now, Motown is beginning, you know, over in America, they're beginning to look for original songs. Barry Gordy is holding contest and he's having groups come in and sing for him and then when he picks the best group he says to them i'm going to give you a record contract but i'm going to give you two weeks to go home and write an original song and come back that's something that's not being done in england at this time that's unique to motown but the beatles are adamant They've already been writing lots of songs. John and Paul have already been writing songs. And Bill Harry, who is the man that um, formed the Mersey Beat fanzine, which was probably the first fanzine or music 
magazine that existed, he was writing it in Liverpool, had been talking to George Harrison and saying, listen, George, you're as talented as they are. You can write music, too. And George is very afraid to do that because he... John and Paul haven't really wanted him to do that. They've given him one or two songs per record, and he doesn't want to step on their toes. He's three years younger than they are. They really treat him like a kid brother. But Bill Harry keeps encouraging him to write a song, and finally he does, Don't Bother Me. And he eventually emerges into the guy that writes something. So they're all, even Ringo is a songwriter as well. So, you know, it's an incredible group of people, and they can do original better than anyone on the planet. George Harrison writing something, but he also wrote Here Comes the Sun While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Um, And one of my favorites, which is Old Brown Shoe, that's up there in my top five as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, any one of those guys... Uh, could have, could have, and actually was, and and continued to be a musical genius in their own right. Let alone uh, part of a supergroup that they created together. Um, right. Let's talk about the time, uh, Jude. When the Beatles emerged, uh, do you consider mu- pop music at the time to have had a vacuum? I mean, Elvis Presley wasn't necessarily productive. He was making cheesy movies at the time. I'm also an Elvis fan. I feel like I can say that. Um, you know, there was the the Beach Boys hadn't really done their thing yet. There was a bit of a vacuum. Did they come along at the right time to do what they did? Perfect timing. Perfect timing. You know, like we were saying a minute ago, it was the era of the Bobbies. It was it was almost a, a more mature audience that the pop singers were shooting for. They were very palatable, these boys, to moms and dads of America. And then there was also rock and roll, but rock and roll wasn't generally accepted. My father was a principal of a junior high school, and he's one of the few people I actually knew pre-Beatles who approved of rock and roll. And I used to go to sleep each night with headphones on. He was doing a sleep learning class for his doctorate and I would listen to rock and roll songs. Most parents wouldn't let their kids listen to rock and roll. It was considered vulgar and dangerous. And, you know, it sounds racist now, but back in the 1950s, that was what they called Negro music. And so people didn't cross over. They did not listen to it. The Beatles took Chuck Berry songs and Little Richard songs, and they made them popular for all people. And, of course, as you know, when they went to America in 1964 on their North American tour, they had it written into their contract that they would never play for a segregated audience and that they would know if people were segregating the audiences and just putting one or two black fans in the audience and they would not perform. They're taking what has been in the shadow of the 1950s and bringing it to the fore. They take the exciters with them on tour. Um, They take Frogman Henry in 1964 and they do it again in 65 and 66. So much of our lives they touched and changed and that's just one tiny aspect but what a difference they made in everything we did in the 60s. Many of us know the name Johnny and the Moon Dogs, the Quarrymen, the Silver Beatles, but walk us through the evolution of how the Beatles got their start and how they met each other. It really all begins, as the French would say, cherchez la femme, look for the woman. But it is definitely, the whole thing is definitely the brainchild of Julia Stanley Lennon, John's mother. Um, Julia 
as most people know, left John with her aunt, I mean, with his aunt, her sister, Mary Elizabeth, or Mimi, to be raised. Her father, Pop Stanley, believed that Julia was living a life of sin. She had asked her husband, Fred, for a divorce, and when he refused her, she had fallen in love with another man named John Dykins, and she wasn't about to be stopped by Fred Lennon, so she moved in with John Dykins anyway. Well, that was, in the 1950s, absolutely over-the-top shocking. And so when Fred Lennon, John's father, came to Liverpool, he found John living He'd run away. He wasn't completely happy with the John Dykins situation, and he'd run away to his aunt's house and his uncle's house. His father found him there, didn't ask anyone's permission, took him to Blackpool where he booked two tickets for them to go to New Zealand and live in New Zealand forever. The night before they're to leave, his mother, Julia, shows up on the doorstep, and according to John, and there's been all kinds of controversy about this in the last few years, but perception is reality. And John said, they put me between the two of them and they made me choose. At first I chose my dad. Eventually I chose my mom. And when she took me back to Liverpool that afternoon, she left me at my aunt and uncle's house. So the pain of losing her becomes all-consuming. All John wants is her attention, her love, for her to notice him. Well, when she finally does come into his life as a teenager after his uncle passes away, she comes back as a best friend. She tells John, John, I have a secret to tell you. You have music in your bones. I play my banjo in pubs all over Liverpool. Your father used to entertain the soldiers going to the war front on the big ships in World War II, and people loved him. You are going to be great. You're going to be bigger than Elvis someday, but you need to form a band. And so he believes her, and he does. And the Quarrymen is the band that results from that seminal idea that I'm going to be great. I'm going to be a famous rock and roller. And the Quarrymen are just local boys from Walton, the suburb of Liverpool that John grew up in. His best friend, Pete Shotton's in that group. Lots of guys who are going to fall along the wayside because they're not serious. If they didn't show up for band practice, John canned them. He was dead serious. Um, in A year later, in, 19, in the summer of 1957, he goes to what is a little ice cream social parade, church event, uh, pie-selling booths, that kind of thing. It's called the Woolton Garden Fet. And he's introduced to a boy from Allerton, which is right next to where he lives, who can tune his own guitar and who knows the words to songs, which is something John could never, never do. The boy sort of auditions by playing 20 Flight Rock, which has 6,000 verses. And John knows he's got to have this guy in the band. Doesn't want him in the band at all because guy's good-looking, he's smart, He's talented, and he's going to be a threat to John's leadership. But after a couple of days, he puts the good of the band in front of the good of John Winston Lennon and asks Paul McCartney to join the group. And I mean, from almost the minute that Paul is in the group, he's starting to take over because he's hammering John to let this young kid come into the band, a lead guitarist, really talented, 14-year-old, and John is 17. And so he's trying to push him to let George Harrison join the group. And John finally, in March of 1958, relents and lets George in. Stu Sutcliffe, John's soulmate, his brother, his best friend, is admitted as a bass player, and they go through all sorts of iterations. As you said, Johnny and the Moondogs, and um, 
John and Paul go off for a while and do a thing on their own as the Nurt twins, and then they become the Silver Beatles. And finally, the Beatles thing comes along one year to the date after Buddy Holly has been killed. When Stu Sutcliffe, the bass player, John's friend, comes to him and says, John, the Quarryman is the name you chose because you wanted to get gigs at your high school, Quarry Bank Grammar, but you're not in high school anymore. Why don't we rename the group and do an homage to Buddy Holly? So instead of the crickets, we'll make it the Beatles. But I know you love wordplay, so let's do B-E-A. Beat. And John says, I love it. Great. And they switch to the Beatles. Alan Williams, their manager at that time, sort of manager, reluctant manager, hates the Beatles. He thinks it's the stupidest name he's ever heard, and he makes them say the Silver Beatles, but ultimately it goes back to the Beatles. And, I mean, there's so many. You still have the trip to Hamburg in 60 where Pete Best goes as their drummer, but they're sharing the stage with a powerhouse group, great group from Liverpool, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, and their drummer has a silver streak in his hair, wears a ton of rings, has his own car, very mature, very cool, Richard Starkey, a.k.a. Ringo Starr, and they love Ringo. And eventually, by August of 1962, Ringo is going to come into the band and Pete is going to leave. They bring in Brian Epstein as their manager and things begin to pick up. But I mean, people think the Beatles were an overnight success. They were anything but that. You start with the with the idea from Julia in 1956 that John has music in his bones and he needs to form a band. They don't stand on the stage of Ed Sullivan until February of 1964. It it was truly a long and winding road. Yeah, and and people don't necessarily understand, and I do because I too am a musician. I'm a guitar player and a bass player. I play in bands all of the time. But these guys, when particularly when they were in Hamburg, they were doing like twelve hour shows. I mean, they were playing all day, every day. Talk about building chops. They go to Hamburg totally unprepared for what's going to happen. I don't know what they expected, but they certainly didn't expect a minimum of six hours a night standing and singing. When they get there, they pull up in this battered green and white van. They find out that they have been given the dark end of the Reaper Bond. The Reaper Bond is this street, this red light district where all of the clubs are. And they are going to play in a club that the evening before was a strip club. And no one prepares the patrons who come in the next night to find that the girls are gone and there are British boys there instead. You can imagine how tough that audience was. And they're told they have to play six hours. And John says, we literally played Happy Birthday. I mean, they didn't know that many songs. <laughs> and so they start learning as fast as they can because they realize they have to, they can't play the same 20 songs over and over. They've got to fill a full evening's work. So they quickly start learning and practicing and rehearsing and becoming a tougher and better band. They're living uh, two of them are in a room together, and then the others are in a separate room in the back of a movie theater called the Bambi Kino. They're washing in the toilet, in the movie theater, in a sink, no shower, and the only thing they have in that sink is cold water. And that's how they live from August of 1960 until December of 1960. It's rough. 
it is a tough learning experience. At first, they're just standing there and singing like wooden Indians, and then the Germans start to scream at them, Machau, Machau, meaning put on a show, put on a show. And they begin to slide across the stage and, and shake their hair and scream and take prellies, which were diet pills, slimming pills, which made them very, very hyperactive, and they would do all sorts of things, but they learned how to put on a show, so much so that when they return to Liverpool, they have a gig at Litherland Town Hall on the 27th of December of that year. They're winding the year up of 1960, and the people in just outside of Liverpool in Litherland think they're a German band. That's how different they've become. Leather pants, sweating, screaming, tearing through the stage, and that night, the 27th of December, 1960, for the very first time, girls charge the stage and scream, and that's the beginning of Beatlemania. But, you know, it comes because of Hamburg, no doubt about it. We're talking tonight with Jude Sutherland Kessler, author of, the, the, it's the John Lennon series, right, Jude? Yes. That's what you referred to. We've got four books. You said total of how many on the way? There will be nine all total, I hope. <laughs> I say that because the book that I'm writing right now, Volume 5, is 1965, and we're in May, and we're already up to about 400 pages. Wow. I'm supposed to be doing two years, and I, do, I think it may, I may have to divide it into two books. Wow. So we'll see. And uh, the website I saw for the books is johnlennonseries.com, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, and we're having a great conversation here about the Beatles. Um, uh, I'm in my element talking to an expert. I love doing this. Um, talk a little bit, Jude, about Stu. Uh, you know, he's you know, he, he's kind of sometimes a footnote in the Beatles' history. However, he's an important figure for quite some time before his tragic death. Yeah, he's huge. Um, okay, so we go back to Julia and to the fact that she comes back into John's life in 1955, and. John and Julia at that point, you know, he's wanted her all of his life. All he's wanted is her love and attention, and now he has it. His uncle has passed away, and Mimi, who Mimi had John's best interest at heart. She made him do his homework. She made him go to Sunday school. She taught him determination. He never would have made it through the Beatles years if she hadn't made him toe the line and be determined and follow through. So I'm not dissing Mimi, but she did not really coddle John or love him or treat him the way a mother would. So when Julia comes back into his life after his uncle passes away and Mimi's made the decision not to let young John be there for the funeral, she sends him away and he doesn't know his uncle has passed away until he returns. His uncle is already buried and gone and he becomes hysterical. He starts laughing and can't stop. He is beside himself, and they call Julia in. She comes in, calms him down, and says, I'm coming back into your life, not as your mother. You've got a mother. I'm going to be the new Uncle George, and they become best friends. They do everything together. John skips school. He hangs out with her. They dance around the room to rock and roll records. She, he, she teaches them how to play banjo and then guitar. They are inseparable. And in July of 1958, she's hit by a drunk driver, not 40 feet in the air, and killed. And he's lost her again after they've become best friends. He, John, I do not think would have ever recovered. As it is, he spent the, last, the rest of his life 
wailing for her at the microphones of the world, singing one song after another for her. Uh, you know, Nowhere Man, and I'll Cry mm-hmm. Instead, and Help, and, and on and on and on. So many. And he would not have made it had not Bill Harry, the Mersey Beat guy we talked about earlier, his one of his dear friends from Liverpool College of Art, had not Bill introduced him to Stuart Sutcliffe. Stu was also going to Liverpool College of Art. He was there on scholarship. He was one of the greatest young minds of the early 1960s. He goes on later to study art under Eduardo Palazzi and to become a fantastic artist. Had he lived, he would have been big during the 1960s in art. But Stu is so much like John. He wears unusual clothes. He does and says what he wants to. He's very bohemian. And he and John hit it off, and they become best friends. Definitely, Stu fills the gap that Julia left behind. They, they do everything together. When they're apart from each other, they write each other 19- and 20-page letters. They are both smart. They're both great thinkers. They really become close. And John teaches Stu to play the guitar. In return, Stu teaches John to, to work with his single-line drawings and make them bigger and freer and more open. But he says to him something that's really integral to the success of the Beatles. John, your medium isn't oils or even your single-line drawings. Your medium is rock and roll. So when you grow this band as you're going to, dress differently, talk differently, act differently. When you get your first LP and you're going to have an LP, make the cover artistic. Always have art. This is your medium. Paint your picture. Don't be like anyone else. You don't have to copy the other bands. Be unique. And boy, does that change the Beatles. And it's through Stu that John meets Astrid Kirscher that we talked about earlier in reference to the art, who takes their early photographs and encourages that Beatle cut and encourages the clothes that they wear. Stu, really, the connections that he puts out there for John and the backing that he gives John to be unique and make his band unique changes the whole outlook of the Beatles. Stu um, played bass for the Beatles originally. Um, and I've heard stories that uh, he wasn't a particularly accomplished musician. He was more of an artist, as you said. Uh, and he would turn his back to the audience because he didn't necessarily know all the songs. Um, but John was dedicated to him and loyal to him. Yeah, he was. When they auditioned, the Beatles auditioned for uh, Larry Parnes. They wanted to go on one of those package tours, and they'd never been on a tour. They they really, really wanted to tour. And they go into the Blue Angel and audition. Um, Larry Parnes says to Alan Williams, who set up the tour for them, look, um, I like that group. I like their sound. They're great. But that bass player really it has got to go. And if they'll drop the bass player, they've got a tour with my biggest star. And so Alan, scared to death because he knows John's loyalty to Stu and how much he loves him, comes over, stammers, and says, uh, John, they want you, but they don't want Stu. And I can't repeat what John said probably on there, <laughs> but you've got the gist of it. And he said, we're a group. We're a group. Yeah. They, he either takes all of us or none of us. 
and he, he turns down the package tour. They end up going on a smaller one with Johnny Gentle to Scotland, but, I mean, they could have had the biggest and the best had John been willing. Now, Paul does not like Stu, does not think that he adds anything to the group, and he wants him out from day one. Also, Stu is extremely good-looking, and he's vying with Paul for the good-looking role in the band. He wears sunglasses. He has a mystique about him. and So I know there's a certain jealousy going on there as well, but he's right. Um, Stu was a not a bad bass player. He was an okay bass player. He certainly was no Paul McCartney. I mean, Paul becomes (laughs) – there's no one that can touch Paul. He's a great bass player. He's exceptional. But he – John did not want to get rid of him. And John felt the exact same way about the drummer that they took to Hamburg, Pete Best. Pete was a good drummer. He wasn't a bad drummer. When George Martin says to the Beatles – and says to Brian Epstein, their manager, that he wants to use a session drummer when they record their first song, Love Me Do. He's not dissing Pete Best. Most bands used a session drummer when they cut songs back in the early 1960s. It was just that a professional drummer who did this all the time was better. But again, Paul and George, George especially, had been wanting to get rid of Pete Best because Pete just didn't seem to fit in. He wasn't really from Liverpool proper. He was from a suburb way, way out on the outskirts of town called West Derby. It's spelled Derby. And he doesn't have the Liverpool humor. He's a little bit more serious. He's he's not someone. They picked him just because they needed a drummer to go to Hamburg, not because this is someone that they craved. Meanwhile, they've met Ringo. They crave Ringo. They want Ringo to be part of the group. But John puts his foot down and says, no, Pete's been good for us for all this time. He started with us in 1960 when we went to Hamburg. They're now into 1962. We're not going to do that to him. And not until John's girlfriend of many years, Cynthia Powell, becomes pregnant and John is busy getting ready to get married, are George and Paul able to talk him finally into letting Pete go? John is very loyal. He doesn't like change. He believes you stick with the people who've been good to you. And he's finally persuaded to get rid of Pete, just like he was finally persuaded that Stu was not right. Had Stu not left the band on his own accord to stay in Hamburg and study art, he might never have told Stu to leave the group. He's very, very, very loyal. And we have to uh, complete the story of Stu here. He died tragically not long after that. Yes, he died um, April the, the following year. He had a cerebral hemorrhage. He was 21 years old. There, there are all sorts of opinions about when Stu suffered the kick to the head that caused him to have a brain hemorrhage. There is the rumor, and I'd love to dispel this, that he and John got into a fight and John kicked him in the head. Right, yeah. When, you know, when that story was initially told, Pauline Sutcliffe, Stu's sister, came right out and said, that is an outright lie, that's an outrageous lie. John and Stu were like one. That never would have happened. But then a magazine came to Pauline about a year later and offered her a lot of money to say it was true, and she ended up, and Bill Harry goes off 
madly on this. She ended up saying, well, it was possible it could have been true. I don't know. It wasn't there. And Bill Harry just goes crazy because Bill was the one that introduced John and Stu, knew them, hung out with them every day and says it's impossible, literally impossible. John never would have done that. He loves Stu as much as life, and he wouldn't have done it. But there was an incident, some people say outside Latham Hall, some people say it was Litherland Hall. It was one of those early incidents when Beatlemania was just emerging and the girls were screaming and rushing to stage. And the boyfriends of these girls waited in the alley for the Beatles to come to the tour van. Stu was the first one out. And six or eight guys, the story varies, sat upon him. They were beating him. And believe me, in Liverpool, this can happen. They were kicking him in the head with their boots when John came out. And John went insane, threw his guitars down, ran, got into the fray, broke his little finger. And you can always see that his little finger sticks out at an odd angle. And with two of them in there now, and then the other Beatles were right behind John, uh, the, the guys ran. They left and ran. But Stu was bleeding from the ears. He was, his nose was bleeding. He couldn't see. He, John begged him to go to the hospital and get checked, and he wouldn't do it because he said his mother didn't have any way to pay for it. So he goes home, and just a matter of time before it catches up with him, his brain was actually swelling inside the skull, and it was pressing against the cranium, and uh, it, it was so painful, and he would have moments of blackout of memory and his personality changed and finally he does die from it. There's a great, not completely historically correct, but pretty good as Beatles movies go, movie called Backbeat and it tells this story. It's it's really a touching story of, of Stu. I'm going to change the subject a little bit here and I'm going to try to ask this question so it makes sense. I may have to explain the question. I think that's the sign of not a great question, but I think this is an important question. Um, and I'll give you a little bit of a scenario. I was uh, I was driving along, this was years ago, and I was listening to some Beatles music, and one of the songs that came on uh, that I was listening to was You Know My Name, Look Up My Number, um, which if, I think it was the that was the flip side to Let It Be on the single, but it was, a, it was kind of a nonsense song that the Beatles did. And um, the person with me said, um, I'm not a Beatles fan, but how can you listen to this? And I said, this is amazing. Listen to what they're doing here. It's amazing. And it made me think of something. I, I was starting to question whether or not the Beatles, their personalities and their and their the energy they had within them in them made the music or did the music make the Beatles? What's the chicken and egg here? Gosh, wouldn't that be great if we knew the answer to that? Yeah. I just don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think it's, I I agree with you, they're tied together. The, let's just say that they wrote all of the songs that they wrote. And, you know, people will argue that it's just the music. It's only the music. It's just the music. But let's say that they wrote the songs that they wrote. And they stand there and just sing them. There's no George Harrison doing his little back three-step shuffle dance. There's no Paul waggling his head and winking. There's no John saying hilarious things in the interviews. There's no Ringo who, in America, when they come to America... Ringo buttons sell four times the number of the fan buttons, the I Love Ringo buttons, over the combination of the other three. So he sells 
four times the number combined. Wow. Ringo, the star of the movies, both Hard Day's Night and Help, John writing books that become not only bestsellers, but they he wins the Foyles Literary Award for the Greatest Achievement in Literature in 1964. The artistry, the... How can you separate them? They, the interviews that they give win people over as much as the music. The, the charisma, that's why people want to come to the concerts. They can't hear the Beatles at the concerts. They can't hear the music. They've come for the boys, for the Beatles. And it's not just girls. It's girls and boys. So I just don't think... It's one or the other. If you have that personality, sure, they'll be entertainers, but they won't be as great as they are because of the music. It's, it took both, really. The Beatles um, started to uh, disappear from live performance when it got to the point where, as you just kind of described, they felt like their their live performances were a waste of time. Nobody could hear them. They couldn't hear themselves, for that matter. Um and they also just recognize that in the studio they could be much more creative. Yeah. That, that brings me to a, a bigger question. Do you div- divide or, or maybe define the Beatles' work into any particular uh, divisions, sections, you know, periods, early, late, middle period at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have those early years live at the BBC and um, – Please, please me with the Beatles. Those are the stage performance years. That's that's definitely your stage band, your garage band, your band that just wants to hit the boards and perform and be in front of people. They're energetic. They're on their way up. Everything is happy. They're at the toppermost of the poppermost. And then um, they're really hitting their stride when you get into a hard day's night and help. They're the stars of the movies. Beatlemania is huge worldwide. They're the kings. They're ruling everything. Then you get to 1965, and in 1965, they truly have done it all. They've had all their gold records. John's already had a, a book that's gone to number one. They've made one film, and they're working on the second film. They're working on Help in 1965. They've been on the North American tour. They're going on another one. They've been on the world tour. They're going on another one. They've been on the U.K. tour. They're going on another one. They begin in 65 to get bored and to think, what did we want to get to the top for? Because all it is is a room in a car and a car in a room. And we can't go out anymore. We don't have any freedom anymore. John's living out in the stockbroker belt out in Weybridge, Surrey. He doesn't like living out there. His marriage is beginning to struggle. The Beatles are starting to really get into drugs in March of 1965. They take LSD, George and John do anyway, for the first time inadvertently. Not They didn't even know they were taking it, but they were at a, a friend's house, a dentist. And he gave it to them in their coffee. And they're beginning to change, and they're beginning to question, why did we want all of this? So in those years, you begin to get the transitional albums. You get Rubber Soul, which is definitely transitional. You hear for the first time the sound of the sitar in in Norwegian wood. And the songs are not just love songs anymore. You begin to get very serious subjects. 
uh, it's only love, girl. You hear John struggling in his marriage. You hear sounds of failure. You hear sounds of frustration in Paul and Jane Asher's relationships. And then we go into revolver, big-time transitional. Now you're beginning to move toward a more – John said that Ticket to Ride was a heavy metal song. It isn't heavy metal. It is heavier, but it's not she said, she said, yeah. and it's not tomorrow never knows. When you get to Revolver, they are moving into a completely different mindset. You're into the psychedelic Beatles. And then after that, after Brian's death, when the Beatles fall under the tutelage of Paul McCartney and Paul begins to be the leader of the group for a few years, you have Sgt. Pepper's, which was clearly his concept, and Magical Mystery Tour, and you're still in the Paul mind frame. But by the time that you begin to swing back around to the White Album, John is stepping up again. In fact, he has more songs on the White Album than anyone, enough for him to have done a double record set of his own. And then you move into the, the last, the closing years of the Beatles with you know the Let It Be, Get Back projects, and they begin to, to close things out. But they go through definite phases from very hopeful and very happy all the way to tired, worn out, fed up, angry with each other, needing to move into their solo phase. There is a lot of mention of the phrase, the fifth beetle. Sometimes that's used to refer to Stu. Sometimes that's referred used to refer to um, uh, Brian Epstein. Sometimes it's used to refer to George Martin. Who, in your estimation, was the fifth beetle? Well, I have a I have a different fifth beetle, and I agree. George Martin definitely deserved the fifth beetle. Brian Epstein, definitely. Brian relentlessly pounded the pavement, getting those boys a record contract. Everyone and their brother turned Brian Epstein down. He was never daunted. He never gave up hope. He's the one that, as we all know, put them in suits and ties and made them bow at the waist and be the kind of band that would be welcomed into anyone's home instead of the leather-wearing, swearing, throwing their sandwich at the audience kind of band that they were to begin with. You have to have Alan Williams, the first manager, because he teaches them to perform on the boards, to mock shout. And then Brian teaches them to be gentlemen and to be the kind of group that would be on the Ed Sullivan. So he's definitely a candidate. But for my money, the fifth Beatle was Cynthia Lennon because Cynthia – Wow. was there from the very, very, very beginning. In those days when they were playing in the basement of the Jacaranda, she would stand for hours with a broom in her hands with John's microphone taped to it. That's something they should do on Survivor, wow. is see how long <laughs> you can stand holding a broom with a microphone taped to it. On their honeymoon night, they've been married, and John says, do you want to come with me to the gig tonight? He would have gladly brought her. And she says, no, I need to fade into the background, and you need to go ahead. I don't need to be with you. I will only slow you down. I'll move into the apartment, and you go on. And for a year and a half, she doesn't appear at anything. She lets him chase his dream. He says to her many times, especially right before they went to Hamburg, if you don't want me to go, I won't go. I'll stay here with you. And she says, no, you're going to be great, John. And go on. There's so many ways she could have stopped him, and she didn't. And if you stop John, you stop the whole progress. 
when he's on the 64 tour, I'm very close friends with several of the um, journalists who were on the tour. Ivor Davis, for example, who did the Beatles and me on tour. Oh, my gosh. You want to talk about talking to someone who is a live wire. You've yeah, got to we've, have, we've had him on the show. We've had him on the show. Terrific guy. Great wealth of knowledge. What a great, Isn't he? Yeah, great Isn't, discussion. He's so great. Well, he says, and so does Art Schreiber, who was for the Westinghouse um, radio station at that time, and Larry Kane, who at that time was with WFUN out of um, Florida. He, all of them say, John calls Cynthia every single night. He could not have made it without her because she would calm him down. She would inspire him to go on the next day. She was his peace of mind. And you take that element out, and I think there were many opportunities where I think John would have quit. Now, you go as up to uh, 19, the late 1960s, by 9 November of 1966, he's meeting Yoko, and he's beginning to move into a different phase of his life. But if Cynthia hadn't been there in those early years, I'm not sure that the Beatles would have survived, because I think there were times when John really would have given up. That's fascinating. I read, I read her book. It is, it is a terrific book. Uh, and we lost her recently. I don't remember how many years ago that was now, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, where Cynthia Lennon died, but she was forced to stay, or not forced, but she was in the shadows. Uh, based on your your description there, it sounds like it was a role that uh, she accepted. But I remember the you know the famous interview where one of the reporters asked John about his marriage, or, and he, he you know he didn't know how to respond because it wasn't supposed to be known. It was, they were trying to keep that secret. Right, right. And of course, on live at the BBC, someone says to him, do you get tired of all the stories that people tell about you? And he says, yes, for example, they keep saying I'm getting divorced from my wife, and this is pretty early on. And the uh, journalist says to him, well, or it may have been Brian Matthews saying to him, well, does she, what does she think about this? And John laughs and says, well, she knows we're not getting a divorce. I see her every night. (laughs) So, you know, they, by just before September of 1963, she is found out, and the they she tries to sneak away. Journalists around her mother's house, which is where she's living out on Hoy Lake, the peninsula across from Liverpool, and she sees the journalist and she puts on a disguise and sneaks out the back door with her baby carriage. But they follow her and they find her, and the news gets out that John is in fact married, as most people have thought all along. And she's in tears and is so sorry because she doesn't want to do anything to hurt him. And he says, I'm glad because I wanted to take you with me all along. This has been ridiculous. And from now on, you're going anywhere I go. And she does go on that trip to America when they perform on Ed Sullivan, even though Brian Epstein forbids it, John takes his wife with him. So they, I think her story has been extremely downplayed. She doesn't fit the myth that John only loved Yoko. So not true. They fell for each other in 1958, and they were together for a very long time. They were t- 10 years all total. And, you know, that's not something to be sneezed at. They, they tried even at the end when after Cynthia had come home from her trip to Spain and had come home to find Yoko wearing her bathrobe and in her bedroom, John went to Cynthia and said, this means absolutely nothing to me. This was just a fling. Let's get back together. Let's have a baby. I think if we had another child, we could save our marriage. And she says, John, you know better than that. You know you need to be with someone like Yoko Ono. That's who you're looking for. And, it, you know, it, it, they, it was a definitely a real relationship, not just 
you know, that they had to get married. That's definitely not why they got together. Something that you um, mentioned in, in talking about Cynthia here in, in justifying your idea that she would be should be considered the fifth Beatle, you, you opened my eyes to a dependency John had on Cynthia that I wasn't necessarily aware of. John also had a dependency on Yoko in, in the later years. Was it John's... Um, nature to need somebody to be his pillar, to be his strength, to be his conscience, maybe? You know, John is always trying to fill that hole in his heart that is left by Julia when she leaves him with, with Mimi and George. And he, especially a few years later, when he finds out that his mother has had other children. I mean, she has two cute little girls, Julia and Jackie. And so it's not children that she doesn't want. It's quite obviously him. And that's what he thinks. And so he begins really, like I said earlier, trying to do anything that he can do to win her love, to make her notice him, to know that he is smart enough and talented enough and clever enough that she should have loved him. And when he, in the White Album, when he writes the song for her, half of what I say is Mm. meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. Such a beautiful song. Beautiful song. You know, she says everything. So... What does he do? He tries to find a girl that is going to fill the Julia role, someone who will not turn her back on him, someone who won't abandon him. And for a while, that's Cynthia. But Cynthia is nothing like Julia. She isn't bohemian. She isn't bold. She isn't outside of the box. She is a normal, sweet, good wife. She's not Julia. And Yoko definitely is. Yoko is smart. She is talented. She's a strong woman. And she is eight years older than John is. He calls her mother. She gives him an allowance. She tells him that if he doesn't behave, she's going to leave him. Very frequently tells him she's going to leave him if he doesn't behave. Um, It is a, a very tricky psychological relationship. Is there any doubt in your mind or thought in your mind that Yoko uh, manipulated John? Hmm. (laughs) How to answer this on (laughs) national radio? (laughs) Um, Let me see. Uh, Okay, so we know that John and Yoko definitely met several months before the famed November 9th, 1966 meeting at the Indica Gallery that John Dunbar had invited John to attend. Uh, She had come to him several months earlier and was looking for a signed music manuscript to give as a birthday present for John Cage and, and asked John to give her one, knocked on his door and asked her to give her something that she could give. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. Why don't you go talk to Paul? Um, they knew each other before, and this, of course the storyline is that you know, she had never heard of the Beatles. Everybody had heard of the Beatles. I don't know if you uh, watch Everybody Loves Raymond. Do you, you ever watch that show? I've watched a few episodes, sure. Okay, well, there's one episode in which Peter Boyle, who, by the way, was great friends with John, they were really close friends, it says to uh, his son's father-in-law, the father-in-law says he's never had a muffin, and Peter Boyle says, you're a liar, everyone's had a muffin. Well, you know, everybody knows the Beatles, everybody knew the Beatles, You, you couldn't, you have to be living on a different planet. So I think that there are, there 
in all of the Beatles' lives, there are truths and there are myths. There are all sorts of stories, for example, that John was born in a bombing raid and Mimi, his aunt, ran through the streets of Liverpool in a bombing raid to hold him for the first time. Well, she was 36 years old. 36-year-olds back in the 1950s were middle-aged women. They didn't own tennis shoes. They didn't own running shoes. They weren't fit. They didn't work out. And furthermore, if you were on the streets of Liverpool in a bombing raid, you would have been arrested. But the crowning glory is there was no bombing raid. On the 9th of October, 1940, I've been to the war office. I've been through the records. There was a single Junkers 88 shot down in egg birth, a a uh, suburb of Liverpool, about eight miles out of town, and that's it. It was a quiet night. So there have been all kinds of myths and stories that develop. But the story that, you know, John and Yoko met and fell blissfully in love just absolutely is not completely true. There's a great book that's out. It just came out, as a matter of fact, John Lennon, 1980, by Kenneth Womack. And it takes you through the 10 years. It's really not about 1980. It's about 1970 through 1980. And you see all of the many, many things that happened to John and Yoko in those 10 years. There were good days, and just like anyone else, there were bad days. There were days so bad that she sent him away with the beautiful May Pang to live for 18 months apart from her, sometimes in New York, sometimes in L.A., but definitely it isn't as blissful as the mythology would have us believe. Tell us about your time in Liverpool. How important was, was were those visits and that time you spent in Liverpool in helping you write the books? Oh, gosh, what could I have? I could not have done it without the seven years that I went back and forth to Liverpool to do interviews, interviewed hundreds of people. We would do an interview in the morning, do an interview in the afternoon, do an interview at night, and really hit it hard. I worked hard the whole time that I was over there. And I got to meet all of the people that you would expect. Alan Williams was still alive at that time, and, oh, my gosh, was that a wonderful experience, getting to meet him. And Beryl Adams, who worked at North End Music Stores and worked for Brian Epstein and was married to Bob Wooler, the DJ at the Cavern Club. I got to meet the beloved Bob Wooler, Helen Anderson, who was John's great friend at Art College, and June Furlong, who was the life model at Liverpool College of Art. John would follow her around and ask her, you're famous. What did you do to become famous? I mean, he just really wanted to know, what's the ingredient? What do I need to do? Rod Murray, who roomed with John and Stu at Gambier Terrace. And, I mean, just on and on, Johnny Guitar and um, Colin Fallows, who works at John Moore's University's head of the art department there, who introduced me to George Jardine, John's art professor, and so many of the people that rub shoulders with the Beatles. Um, it just was an incredible experience. But what, the best thing that came out of it, besides learning where all the buildings were located, when you walked out of the Cavern Club, how would you get to the White Star? If I'm on St. John Street, how do I get to the Cavern Club? If they're at the Empire and they've just auditioned as teenagers, what do they see when they walk outside? And John has the quarrymen on the sidewalk, and he's chewing them out and telling them that we've got to get a gimmick, and we've got to work harder because we lost this audition, and we've got to get better. What are they looking at? What are they seeing? What's the language? What do they mean when they say cat? or mucking you're at your granny's. Learning the language was huge, 
but the biggest thing was that I made friends with the people that are in the book, and they offered to take their chapters and correct them. So Bill Harry says to me, okay, you, you did pretty pretty well, you, you, but you have me in the wrong room at Ye Crack. I always sat in the back room, and you need to put me under the painting of Lord Nelson, and you got me ordering ale. I only drank bitters. Man, when you've got the original people in the in the room who were actually there, part of the story, taking their chapters and correcting them, that is worth its weight in tons of gold. Um, a question scrolling through our chat room here. Um, when you talk about the people you've had the opportunity to, to uh, meet and interview and discuss the Beatles and their career with, Jeff Emmerich ever show up on that list? Yes, I did get to talk with Jeff Emmerich. I was so excited um, a few years ago uh, the Grammy Museum opened a branch in Mississippi. And right after they opened, they approached me to, uh, I'd been running a, a uh, symposium in Arkansas at the great festival, Beatles at the Ridge, which was voted by USA Today as one of the best 10 ways to learn about the Beatles. And I'd been doing a symposium for them for many years. And the Grammy said, would you do a Beatles symposium for us since we've just opened our doors? And so I worked for almost a year trying to put the symposium together. We were really lucky to have Frida Kelly come from Liverpool, who was the Beatles fan club secretary, and they did a movie about her, Good Old Frida, and she flew over to be part of it, and Ivor Davis was part of it that, that you know so well. Bruce Spizer from New Orleans, who's written a whole series of books on the Beatles LPs, and um, Lena Stagg, who did recipe records about that incorporates food, with um, music and and music trivia, music history, and just so many interesting people. Well, after all this hard work, they said, what would you like? I mean, we can get you tickets to come to the premiere party, or what would really make you happy at, for doing all this work? And I said, well, I know you're having Jeff Emmerich come speak and talk in a very small group, like 25 people, in a couple of months could I be part of that small group? And they were very gracious and said yes. And afterwards, I got to sit down and interview Jeff and talk to Jeff. Sweet, lovely gentleman, so nice and so willing to give of his time. And then, of course, every year I go to the wonderful, beloved Fest for Beatles fans in New Jersey and in Chicago. Missed it so much this year. Jeff was there, and I'm walking down the hall, and I knew he wouldn't remember me. And I said, hey, Jeff, how's it going? It's good to see you again. He goes, hey, Jude, can you imagine (laughs) the excitement? That man's memory that he could remember after just a short visit with him in Mississippi at the Grammy Museum, I just wanted to do a happy dance. He, he has so many sharp memories of his time in EMI studios with the Beatles, and it was just great to be able to visit with him. I mean, to be witness of, of that process, uh, let alone being part of it, uh, you know, there's probably no better seat in the world that I could have picked if I had a choice to pick one uh, than his seat as he was watching all that unfold. I know. And Richard Langham, too. He, Richard was a second engineer, which he basically sets up the tapes, rewinds, does the playback for the boys and that sort of thing. And Richard 
helped me to write the second volume, which is 1961-63, Shivering Inside. And he would say to me, where did you get this stuff that they came in the tradesman's entrance? I said, well, that's what Paul McCartney says in the anthology. He goes, there was no tradesman's entrance. That was just the back door. And he goes, when you've got the, you got everybody that works at EMI wearing lab coats, where did you get that? I said, that's in George Martin's All You Need Is Ears. He goes, we wore regular suits and ties. Take that out of there. So you really need someone like Richard Langham to set you straight. And I was so grateful that he gave his time to do that. I love Paul McCartney as a bass player. That's my primary instrument. Obviously, I idolize him. And as a Beatle, I idolize him as well. Um, but I, I find that, first of all, he's, he's, he's not shy to do interviews, which I love. But he seems to romanticize a little bit but recently he conducted a series of interviews with the bbc i believe uh that that was that are designed for a special uh tribute to john lennon's 80th birthday which we're a few days away from here and one of the things paul said in talking with uh sean lennon john's younger son he says that um if it would have been a heartache if he paul and john hadn't reunited prior to john's you know unexpected death um, yeah. What do you think of that statement, and what's your opinion of the relationship between John and Paul after things went bad with the Beatles in, you know, in the post-Beatle years? Well, I do feel that Paul really is sincere about saying that. I, I know that both Paul and John and George and John had some tough times in the later years when George's autobiography came out and he did not mention John as a major influence. When John had been his big brother, literally went everywhere with George. George tagged along with him even when he went to see Cynthia after she'd had appendicitis in the hospital. He followed John like a shadow. He, John really felt like George slighted him by not saying something about their closeness and John's influence. And he and Paul had some nasty, nasty fights in the last years, the waning years of the Beatles. And so it would have been a tragedy to lose John and to have them not come together again and become friends again, which they did. They, they did patch things up. But um, the relationship between Paul and John, thank goodness, was a very fruitful, productive competition. When Love Me Do, was, which was sung by John, when, and John played the harmonica at the same time, and George Martin said to John, you're not going to be able to sing this song, John, because you're going to go, love, love me, and play the harmonica, and people are going to call it Love Me Wah. That's what they're going to call the song, Love Me Wah. So you can't sing it. We have to give it to Paul to sing. Paul didn't want it, but... It became, went to like number 17 on the charts, and then John is jealous because his song now has become Paul's song, and it's hit the charts. So immediately he sets down to write Please Please Me and determines it's going to go to number one, which it did, because he wants to outdo Paul. Paul feels the same way about John. They are constantly one-upping each other. They want to be more clever than the other one. They want to tell a better story or they want to write a better line. They definitely want to outdo each other, and that healthy competition gives us the greatest catalog of music ever produced. They were never very close as friends. There was one incident in 1964 
in Key West when they had to circumvent Hurricane Dora, and they were hanging out at the Key Wester Motel, and the Bill Black combo was performing that night, and the Beatles were on their own. They didn't have to play or to perform or do anything, and they'd been drinking quite a bit. And John and Paul took a bottle and went down to the beach and really talked, and really talked. And that's the night we cried that Paul alludes to in his tribute to John. But ordinarily, if John went on holiday, he went with George Harrison uh, repeatedly, George and Patty and John and Cynthia, and he wanted Ringo to move out close to him at Weybridge, Surrey, which Ringo did, and, and they they hung out. John and Paul worked together. When Paul was at John's house, they were working, and it was a wonderful working team, but it was not a... Uh, a close friendship. In fact, there's an incident in 1964, the end of the year, when Ray Coleman, who wrote Lennon, great biography, is interviewing John, and John is beginning. The, I told you 65 is the year where everything sort of flips. They, they've done it all, they've seen it all, and they're tired of it all. So John, at the end of 64, is griping. He's saying, I don't want to tour again anymore. We're tired of that. No one listens to us. They don't hear what we're singing. And I don't know why we're doing this, another Beatles Christmas show. Why are we dressing up in abominable snowman costumes? And This seems ridiculous. This isn't what we're about. And he's griping. And Paul turns around. He's watching TV and says, shut up, John. You're bad for my image. He doesn't want him complaining to the public or coming out in the newspapers and saying negative things. And he doesn't want him to ruin the Beatles' image. And that's sort of how they start getting along together by the end of 1964, the beginning of 65. They weren't buddy-buddy, chummy-chummy. It wasn't that kind of relationship. But they were an incredible songwriting team. And when you told them to get down to business, you think about just – you know, Andrew Luke Oldham coming to them and saying, do you have a song that the Stones can use? And they say, well, we've got one that we've partially finished, but we haven't quite finished it. And Oldman says, well, how how soon could you do it? And they turn it out in 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> so um, I, you know, I want to be your man. Mm-hmm. They they can When they sit down to work together, no one can beat Lennon-McCartney. But is it a big, big love affair? Not all the time. We're going to run out of time, as I expected we would, before I run out of questions. But I want to ask you about um, a movie that came out somewhat recently called Yesterday. And, uh, you know, it, it supposes that people never were exposed to the Beatles and their music, except for one person in the world. And that one person uh, takes on the mantle of playing Beatles song, first a bit selfishly, but then it turns out uh, he's doing it because the world really needs the Beatles and their music, and they were deprived of them for some weird twist of fate in this movie. Um, And a very poignant moment in that film is when one of the other uh, main characters in the film, I think it's Ed Sheeran, I think that's his name, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. who was actually involved in making the film, um, challenges this main character to a songwriting competition on stage uh ed sheeran does his song it's a perfectly fine song and then the the main character plays the long and winding road and when you hear that song played that way in a quote-unquote songwriting competition against somebody uh, another brilliant songwriter and you realize that that particular song like many beatles songs is head and shoulders above anything that anybody else has written, in my opinion. Um, that was a poignant moment for me. It gave me another level of appreciation 
for the Beatles. I've known they're brilliant songwriters, but when I heard it done that way and put in that context, it made it even more poignant to me. Yeah, and have you ever seen Across the Universe? I have, yes. Yeah, I mean, you think of what they do with the Beatles songs and that movie as well. They're done completely differently. Um, They are written from different perspectives and point of views, and they're choreographed. Listen, the Beatles' music, it just fits today so well. It's still so relevant. It still can be translated into the modern tongue. It still works in movies. It still, I mean, when they started streaming on Spotify, what was that, two years ago, they went to number one. Yeah. They're still ruling the charts. So, yes, I, I, the music of yesterday was absolutely beautiful. And I, um, I just hope, I, I, it really amazes me when people take a negative stance. On one of the nights of American Idol about two years ago, the contestants were tasked with singing Beatles songs. And so many people were writing on Facebook, I just can't stand this. I don't know. They're ruining Ugh. the Beatles songs and all this. And I thought, listen, people, you want young people to keep singing these songs in their own way for as long as we can, because John Lennon said, you never die until the last person who remembers you says your name for the last time. So I want everyone to keep reinterpreting these songs and singing them and saying the Beatles' names and keeping them alive for as long as we possibly can. Two very quick questions, and I'm going to let you go. Um, Obviously, we're approaching John Lennon's, what would have been his 80th birthday, He was murdered when he was 40 years old, so we're crossing a period where he will have been gone longer than he was alive, which is a sad milestone to pass. Where were you when you heard about John Lennon being murdered? My husband had been at sea for what was supposed to be a four-month deployment. It had turned into almost nine months, and he was coming home the very next day. And I had just been so lonely and so miserable, and I was so excited, and I was taking the new dress I'd bought and putting it out with my shoes and so happy, and the phone rang, and it was the son of the CO of the ship who I'd become very close with. The CO's family had sort of taken me in because I was living by myself in Virginia Beach and didn't have any friends, really, and so they'd had me over to dinner a lot, and he said, um, Miss Jude, I think you, you need to sit down. And I sat on the kitchen floor, and I said, okay, what? I thought, oh, no, the ship has been delayed again. They're not coming in tomorrow. And he said, John Lennon has just been killed. And, I mean, it just it, there's just no words for what that does to you. And the next day, you would think that my husband and I would be smiling and running to hug each other after nine-month separation, and he walks down the gangplank, and I walk toward him, and we're both crying. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, one of those moments that, um, you know, like the assassination of JFK, you know where you were, you know how you felt. Those feelings still exist today, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Last yeah, question. Last question. This may be an A B two part because it may not be the same answer for both. But what what's your opinion of the most important Beatles album? And what's your favorite Beatles album? Ooh, okay, that is difficult. That's a thinker. I'll do the easy part first. Live at the BBC 
is my favorite Beatles album. I would give anything if I could be transported back in time to the Cavern Club and see them before they was, who they was. If they could have the leathers on, if they were raucous and yelling and being the Beatles of old and singing all those great cover songs, ah, would love it. That's, That's my group right there. The most important one probably will be Revolver. I was not a big Revolver fan, um, didn't understand it, didn't like it very much until I read Robert Rodriguez's Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll. And then I realized that what issues in those studio years and those years in which we get the genius of all the LPs that will follow, you know, especially the White Album, is the entrance drug, which is Revolver. The boys are no longer going to be going out and meeting the public. They're going to be making music in the studio, and this sets the pace for them. So it, it isn't definitely not, not my favorite kind of music, but it's so important in what is to come. It really is. Jude, this this time has gone uh, fast. It's I kept you longer than I had said I was going to. I appreciate you sticking in there with me, and I hope you'll agree to come back another time because I have several more pages of questions and topics that you and I need to talk about. I would love it. Just love it. Terrific. Again, give your website out where people can get a hold of the books. John Lennon series. Dot com. First three books are sold out, but they're on every ebook format. And the, the fourth volume, we have a limited number of first editions, and they're going to be sold out. So get them while the getting's good. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, again, thank you for being here. I uh, hope you're faring well during these weird times and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, JV. Had a great time. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.